Involvement with the criminal justice system is life-changing. It matters. Having a justice system that works is a really important part of a democratic society. I'm Penelope Gibbs, Director of Transform Justice. I'm Rob Allen. I've worked in and around criminal justice all my career. This is the Transform Justice podcast. Throwing light on the criminal justice system. Hearing from people who know. It's about whether the system's fair. And what can be done to make it better. This week, we're going to ask whether the parole process for deciding whether someone can be released from prison is fair and whether new government proposals for reform will make the process fairer. To discuss parole, I'm joined by Professor Nikki Padfield of the University of Cambridge and Laura Jaynes, a consultant solicitor for GT Stewart. Rob, we've got quite a complicated system for prison release in England and Wales with some people with set release dates and others who don't. What's the rhyme or reason here? Well, you're right. Uh, Penelope, the vast majority of people get a sentence fixed by the court and they're released automatically at the halfway point or the two-thirds point and the the parole board's not involved in that at all. Uh, But some people, particularly those sentenced for very serious offences like murder, get open-ended sentences effectively and after they've spent a period that the court decides they need to for punishment... It's then up to the parole board to decide when they can be released. So they have a kind of minimum period um, where they might possibly get out and then there's a sort of some time after that. Well, the minimum period they have to serve in prison and it's after that that they can make an application to be released. There's one other group that's quite important. Even those who are released automatically, if they go back to prison during the remaining part of their sentence, the parole board can get involved in deciding whether they should be re-released, even though they're not involved in the initial decision. Laura, can you just give us a potted history of a parole release? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it is really complicated because I think what people don't realise, the focus is on you know how long people stay in prison and how easy it is to get out. But actually coming out of prison, I always tell my clients, is one of the hardest things you ever have to do. And there are mountains of conditions that can be piled on people. Um, even just today, I was talking to a young man who is looking at potentially being released on parole, who will have a curfew from nine in the evening till seven in the morning, who will be required to sign on at 12 in the afternoon and five on the afternoon. Um, Now, if you don't comply with those conditions, boom, you can be back in jail. And, And in many cases, you won't get out again until the parole board says so. What kind of goes into the decision that a parole board would make to say, okay, you can be released? In order to release somebody, the parole board has to be completely confident that it is not necessary for them to stay locked up to protect the public from serious harm. And the big issue is how one is to demonstrate that. So usually they will be taking evidence um, from the person themselves, but more importantly, from the people who have been involved with them, psychologists who have assessed them, probation officers who have assessed them. You might be able to get on a course that is designed to reduce your risk of reoffending, um, but it's not always that easy. Perhaps if I give you an example of a young man that I've been working with actually for over a decade now who had uh, committed a serious offence 
um, but had a brain injury. In that instance, after almost a year of deliberation and various psychological reports, it became clear that no matter what courses he did, he would never be able to internalize that learning. And what was really needed was a really robust release plan, which included 24-7 supervision in a supported environment. Uh, and Nikki, you've done research for many years into, into the parole board and how it reaches decisions. What do you think are the, the most important things that influence a, a decision to release or, or a decision to keep somebody in prison? It's a wonderful question, and of course there are no easy answers. As we've already said, um, the rules are getting more and more complicated all the time. Um, clearly they're not going to recommend or direct somebody's release unless they're confident that it's the right thing to do. So the reports that they read, written by people who know the prisoner, are vital. Probably even more important but difficult to weigh up these things is what the prisoner themselves says. That's one of the things which I think is quite unfair about the system because the parole board hearing is very frightening. And I suspect that an awful lot of people in prison before the parole board don't really get across what they would like to get across. They answer the questions put to them but then at the end of the day, the panel of the parole board may well decide that the person wasn't really sorry for what they'd done, for example, but nobody asked them explicitly about their regrets or their remorse. So if they weren't asked, they won't have said it. Yes, I'd like to um, pick up on that because, as, as Nikki says, it's really frightening. It's worse. It's terrifying. And sometimes they really do just clam up. And I had a devastating example um, a, a few months ago of a young black boy who was an incredible artist actually created amazing music he clearly had the ability to be a confident articulate person but in that environment he just couldn't speak for himself and there was no way to, to really as try as I might to try and draw out the essence of this actually really lovely young man that I'd got to know and to enable the parole board to see him. So so the um, person in prison, the prisoner has to do a kind of performance. It's, it's almost like a, a piece of theatre. In many ways, it's um, more difficult than the original trial because in a trial, the defendant is often nowadays, sadly and wrongly in my eyes, in a glass box at the back of the court and nobody's looking at them when they're sentenced but a parole board hearing is extraordinarily in your face um, if it's in person you're round a table very close together with the panel eyeballing the prisoner and normally as a researcher when they're talking to me they will pour out all sorts of amazing stuff which makes me really sympathetic to them for the reality of their lives, the difficulty of proving that it won't happen again, get them into the parole board hearing and one fierce question can knock them off balance and it's such a desperately stop-start system for prisoners. You come up for your parole board hearing, you have what um, people tend to call a knockback, they don't give you what you want 
and then you'll be waiting perhaps two years for your next hearing. There's no computer that the prisoner can check in on and say, can I find out when my next hearing is? And I think if we're today talking about unfairness, I think the uncertainty, the feeling from the prisoner's point of view of not being in control of their parole application is something deeply problematic. It sounds like the odds are stacked pretty heavily against the person in prison getting released. Would you agree with that, Laura? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, as Nikki says, a hugely intense and anxiety-provoking process. One child said to me uh, not so long ago, um, after we come out of a, a face-to-face parole hearing, he said it took 20 minutes to sentence me to over three years and it's taken four hours to decide if I can come out a few weeks early. And it's that scrutiny. And I always think of it almost like a psychodrama. You know, everything about you and what you're thinking and and the reasons behind everything you do and say. Uh, you, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the criminal justice system that I've come across. Nikki, I'm interested in the fundamentals here because the prisoner needs to demonstrate that they no longer pose a threat to the public, but they're in prison. The parole board has got to decide on the basis of some evidence what they're going to be like when they're free. So how on earth are you, could you ever actually prove that? What a good question. And that is the problem. How, how do you, how would you, how would I prove such a thing? I think a lot of it is luck. If you get uh, a personal officer who believes in you, who's prepared to support you, then you're more likely to get positive reports and you're more likely to be recommended for release. Again, I would suggest that we have many thousand too many people in prison on a life sentence. Rob mentioned the mandatory life sentence for murder, but there are many people who are in prison on a discretionary life sentence. The law didn't require them to have a life sentence, but the sentencing court decided that they were in some sense dangerous. And most people listening to this podcast, I suspect, will have heard of IPP, Imprisonment for Public Protection. In the first few years, people were getting IPP for relatively minor robberies. So some people were getting a minimum term of, let's say, only two years, three years. And they've served many, many more years than that in custody. The IPP prisoners are certainly prisoners for whom the system is not only apparently unfair, I would argue it is straightforwardly unfair. They're going for their regular parole board hearings, getting knockbacks and proving that it's safe to release them. It's a really, really difficult situation. And Nikki, what do the statistics show in terms of the the number of cases that the parole board does release of, of the people that they examine, do you know roughly how many positive decisions to release they make and how many knockbacks? It's certainly uh, a significant majority of knockbacks. So they are very, very cautious in their decision making. I think the main thing I would want to say 
is the parole board is just one small cog in a very complicated criminal justice system. The law is far, far too complicated, but it's not just the law that is problematic. It's the whole way that we try and help or don't always try and help prisoners to re-engage with society, to resettle in the community. It is so challenging that it's hardly surprising that many of them get recalled to prison. Laura, what I'm getting the impression of is is that prisoners, A, it's a very scary occasion, but they also have to go through hoops to prepare for the parole hearing and get this evidence. Amongst these hoops are doing programmes. But as I understand it, you know, it's quite difficult to get on the programmes. So are we setting hoops in front of people which they can't even get through? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Over the last two years in particular, it's been almost impossible to get on any programme. So we've got a two-year backlog. But it's also not clear that the programmes really help. And in fact, the sex offender treatment programme evaluation suggests that it may actually even make you worse. So that's a really depressing thing. Prisoners have no control over what they do. They get shunted around the country. I've just had a lad that was moved hundreds of miles to do a course that's totally inappropriate for him but it was the only one that would meet his learning disability needs. The other thing of course is this issue of open conditions. The idea is that you allow prisoners to demonstrate that they can be trusted in conditions of lesser security so they are still part of the prison estate and they are by no means easy places to be. The difference between an open prison and a closed prison is that you could, in theory, walk out the door. But if you do, you will be caught and you will be sent straight back to a closed prison. You can apply to be considered for uh, day leaves and potentially go to college or have a job, voluntary work, so to start to gradually reintegrate into the community. But there are problems with open conditions. First of all, you know, they don't suit everybody. I have a young autistic man who's made as much progress as he possibly can in closed conditions. He's got very uh, severe sensory issues and the idea of being forced into a dormitory situation is almost unbearable for him. Also, the Secretary of State um, is directly in control of who goes to open conditions. The parole board can make recommendations about people going to open conditions, but that decision is not binding. And there have been recent examples of the Secretary of State overruling uh, and preventing people from going to open conditions. Okay, we've, we've been talking mostly about the unfairness to the prisoners concerned in this, this process, but the last few years have really seen parole hitting the headlines for different reasons. Uh, in particular, following the, the case a few years ago of the uh, taxi cab rapist John Warboys, who the parole board decided could be released and uh, the decision was subsequently reversed and I think the chair of the parole board was relieved of his duties as a, as a result. Uh, Nikki, it's often said hard cases make bad law. What what do you think went wrong in in that case, if if indeed anything went wrong? Well, he was convicted in 2009 
of one rape, five sexual assaults and 12 drugging offences, all of which had happened between 2007 and 2008. But there were allegations for which he had never been prosecuted outside that period. And when his release was directed, yes, all hell broke loose in the media and so on. And there was a challenge to the decision to release him. And the High Court decided that the decision was irrational because the panel hearing the decision should have investigated the circumstances of his offending by looking at the offences for which he hadn't been charged earlier on. It remains very controversial. I have to say, to this day, I'm not convinced by the decision of the High Court in that it seems that it is imposing a burden too far on the parole board to require them to investigate allegations which may or may not be true, which haven't been before a criminal court. At the end of the day, the police and the CPS did prosecute him again for further offences, and he has now been sentenced to life for um, a much longer minimum term. It is a very difficult area, but from where I stand... It is more appropriate that the criminal courts, with the police and the CPS prosecuting people, should decide the crimes that people have committed in the past, and the parole board should focus on the risks in the future. Laura, can I just press press you on what you think? I mean, did the parole board make the right decision in the in the War Boys case, or or not? I'm going to have to give you a typical lawyer's answer. I haven't read that original decision and I'm not in a position to comment on that. But I think the point that Nikki says is really valid. You need good law, good justice from start to finish. We cannot expect the parole board to make up for problems earlier down the line. When somebody gets a minimum term, a court has said that there is an expectation that one day this person might be released and that's the job the parole board is tasked to do. There was a huge furore about the War Boys case and the media appeared to be blaming the parole system. Do you think underneath it there was a real distrust of the parole system? What we know about public opinion and victims' opinions is that they don't really understand the system. I don't think most victims of crime are as punitive as governments sometimes suggest. They don't want their offender to do it again. Of course they don't. They're interested in the protection of the public, as are we all. I think the overriding interest of the victim at parole hearings is in knowing what's going on and being consulted, informed on whether somebody's coming out and the terms and conditions under which they're coming out. And things are improving there. Now, you mentioned the involvement of of victims, and this seems to be one of the areas that the government want to, to change, and the proposals that they published in March seem to be about partly giving victims a greater role or a greater say in what happens uh, when the parole board reaches a decision. What do you think about that proposal, Laura? 
I think that's really problematic. As Nikki says, victims do have a right to know what's going on and they have a right to know that they're going to be safe um, if somebody is released. But the test is about whether the protection of the public, that includes the victims, requires that person to be detained. And unfortunately, uh, it's very difficult to see how victims are going to be able to feed into that process above and beyond what they do already in terms of um, being consulted about license conditions. So um, well, there is a real risk, isn't there, that people will be given an expectation that they will have more voice, that they will be able to take a greater role, and that ultimately, um, unless the test itself is actually changed, it, it, it may not make um, a particular difference. And to that extent, that, that could be quite distressing for victims. So is it the plan, as you understand it, that the government are going to change the test, the question the parole board must ask, because, uh, Nikki, they, they talk about a more precautionary approach, a more cautious approach to making decisions. That sounds like they want to make it harder to release people. Is that your understanding of the proposals? My understanding is that they certainly want to appear to be making it harsher and more difficult to release people. You're talking about the government's root and branch review, as they called it, and they talk about refining the test to put beyond doubt. Well, I think most of us who either study the system or work in the system think that the test is pretty clear anyhow, and it's not clear what they mean by refining it. This precautionary approach that you mention... Um, also involves, according to the proposals, that there's going to be a new model for making decisions about the release of what the government calls the top tier of the most serious offenders. They say that what they're going to do is legislate to provide that where the parole board can't confidently say that the release te test has been met, it's got to then apply this precautionary approach and direct that the offender remains in prison. But that seems to me exactly what they do today. So, And that's exactly what I recognise from practice is happening every day. I mentioned earlier a client with brain damage uh, who, who wasn't even um, on an indeterminate sentence. He was one of those people who the courts had never said was dangerous in the first place. He was recalled because he'd misunderstood the rules of his hostel. And it was over a year and several hearings before he could be released. Um, it couldn't be, from my own experience, more precautionary than it already is. So so what's the problem with the proposals then? If the system's already precautionary, maybe it's just virtue signalling in legislation? Virtue signalling is very dangerous though, isn't it? Because it is pandering to a certain opinion that the parole board is weak and feeble and needs strengthening. So uh, another of the proposals that the um, government's made is to appoint more parole board members with experience of working in law enforcement, such as police officers. And many of them are excellent, excellent parole board membership. But there's an implication that the parole board isn't very tough, isn't, to use that favourite word, robust. The parole board is very robust. They don't make weak and weedy decisions. And I wish the government would stand up a bit more and say, actually, we've got a parole board which makes 
tough decisions, doesn't make many mistakes, and actually they're being asked to predict unpredictable things. The reality is most people are not successful in their applications. So a lot of the root and branch review appears to me to be the government saying what it thinks people want to hear rather than actually leading public opinion and explaining that the parole board is very tough. Laura, I mean, what do you, what do you think? I, I, my understanding is the government want to go even further and allow the Lord Chancellor to intervene to actually block release decisions. Yes, the Secretary of State is sometimes represented. But when it comes to this point you've just raised, Rob, of actually creating a role for the minister to veto release in in what uh, Nikki referred to as these sort of top tier sort of super serious cases um that is i think something that is a real concern and i was talking to um, a colleague of mine Simon Crichton he's a brilliant uh, prison lawyer about this the other day and we were just saying can you think of any other example in any part of the uh, police and legal system where you have politicians making decisions about getting arrested or being prosecuted or what sentence you get. And actually, it was 20 years ago that the um, old-fashioned practice of the Home Secretary setting minimum terms in life cases um, was actually reversed um, because it was acknowledged that it wasn't a matter for politicians. And so the idea that we're now going back 20 years and putting politicians in, t- in charge of judicial decisions about liberty it is really, really concerning. It's not only concerning, it won't stand up to judicial review, will it, Laura? It seems to me inconceivable that we can move back to a position whereby um, it will be acceptable that politicians decide when people come out of prison, which is part of the sentencing process. Um, Politicians can't send people to prison and they shouldn't be releasing people from prison. And I concede, yeah, it's more than concerning, it's illegal, yeah. Okay, just to, to round this up, what we'd like to know from both of you, actually, but let's start with Nikki, is... If you were Lord Chancellor and you could make one reform to the parole system, what would it be? One's a bit mean. Can't we have more than one, Penelope? I mean, I'm a dreamy academic, so I would really like to give prisoners a much, much better understanding of what's going on and much better advocacy. It is really difficult getting legal advice. Um, The lawyers will complain about the lack of legal aid and that doesn't ever get much public sympathy, but actually prisoners deserve good legal advice. And it is really sad when you talk to prisoners who don't have a clue what's going on or what the rules are. The Um, lack of understanding of how the rules work and how they can influence it, I think is deeply problematic. From the whole system's point of view, I'm sorry that the government didn't decide to make the parole board an independent court or tribunal by moving it into the tribunal service, because it is a rather curious body at the moment, which is sort of a semi-independent body, but it is a, a body which is 
more under the um, thumb, can I say that, of the Secretary of State for Justice than I think it ought to be, and it ought to be empowered to make its own directions and so on. Okay, Laurie, if you were Lord Chancellor, what would you do to reform the system? Well, before I come to that, I'm going to have to comment on on Nikki's wishes. Um, In terms of legal aid, I will say that it's really telling that though the Independent Review on Legal Aid recommended that everyone should have a modest 15% uplift um, in in fees, uh, the government has accepted that except for prison lawyers. So prison lawyers have been deliberately left out of that very modest um, fee, which suggests um, that you know, we are going to be very much a dying breed. There's been a reduction in the number of providers of prison law under legal aid by 70% in the last decade. Um, So definitely good quality legal advice for people in prison. If I had to make a, a, a particular sort of choice of something I'd like to change, I think going back to this thing that we need the system itself to have um, strong integrity and independence and to be away from political interference, I would actually, um, if I were Lord Chancellor, I would make the Lord Chancellor a distinct and different role um, because at the moment the convergence that we still have between the Justice Secretary and, of course, the current incumbent is also Deputy Prime Minister and the Lord Chancellor actually doesn't do anything to help with separating the powers. And that's very important if we're going to maintain the rule of law and better justice for everyone. Laura Jaynes, Nikki Padfield, thank you very much indeed. And if you've got an idea for us to discuss, do get in touch on Twitter or email. Thanks again. Bye.